Anyone listening to this podcast knows that I've been telling you about The Great Courses Plus for a while now. Many of you have already signed up, getting unlimited access to watch over 7,000 fascinating lectures taught by award-winning professors. But if you haven't signed up for The Great Courses Plus yet, I want you to do it now with a new offer for our podcast listeners. With The Great Courses Plus, you can watch as many different lectures as you want, anytime, anywhere. One course I recommend is Analysis and Critique, How to Engage and Write About Anything. Presented by Professor Armstrong, the lectures in this course guide you through the essential skills to become a better writer, showcasing tools to organize your thoughts, make a persuasive argument, and create a distinctive voice. I love The Great Courses Plus and want you to try it too. As one of my podcast listeners, when you sign up, you'll immediately get one month free of unlimited access to all of their lectures. Start your free month today by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Brett. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Brett. The following program is a podcast1.com production. I'm Brady Sinellis, and you're listening to the Brady Sinellis Podcast, and I'm at the Podcast One Studios in Beverly Hills with my guest, the filmmaker Alex Gibney. If narrative American movies are over this year, and I'm sorry, listeners, if I didn't respond to The Lobster, which I just found out last night that Don DeLillo hated as well, or The Neon Demon, or Whit Stillman's Love and Friendship, a walkout for me despite 99% on Rotten Tomatoes, or Terrence Malick's Night of Cups, oh, how the mighty have fallen to name a few, then to reduce the sting of these disappointments, there have been some very, very good documentaries this year. Not an overabundance exactly, but so far, this has been an unusually strong year for nonfiction films. Maybe I'm overrating these docs because narrative American movie making is so small and uninteresting in this moment. And like a junkie, I need something, anything, but I don't think so. In the last month, there has been Noah Baumbach and Jake Paltrow's delirious fanboy ode to Brian De Palma as well as Wiener, a raucous documentary about former U.S. Representative Anthony Wiener and his catastrophic race for mayor of New York in 2013. 
and whose subject seemingly gave the crew remarkable access to this derailment, as well as capturing unnervingly intimate moments with Wiener and his wife, Huma Abedin, who is Hillary Clinton's longtime aide, and who is caught off and looking on in stunned disbelief with what she has to put up with on camera, as do the filmmakers, who at a certain point near the end ask Anthony, why did you let us shoot this? Wiener is more entertaining than any American narrative movie this year, and it has a much more complicated, contradictory, and fascinating character at the center of it than any narrative movie either. It's a hilarious and depressing spectacle about celebrity, politics, and the media, and how they are all inextricably conjoined, eating each other alive. There is also Author, the J.T. Leroy story, which opens in September, about a literary hoax from the early oddies, the 16-year-old publishing sensation J.T. Leroy, who was actually fabricated by another author and which fooled the entire publishing world, a throng of adoring celebrities, various filmmakers, and the media for years before it all came crashing down. It is a totally amazing ride. Look for it in September. There is also O.J., Made in America, Ezra Edelman's staggering seven-and-a-half-hour ESPN documentary that takes its time to lay out the groundwork for what happened at the O.J. Simpson trial. Watching it, you might finally say, oh, I get it now. And the archival footage and a few new revelations confirmed are shocking. But because of this movie, it is no longer only just a depressing spectacle. The tragedy of the O.J. Simpson case Edelman lays out was born decades before that fateful night in front of Nicole's condo in Brentwood. And the horrifying, or depending on where you sat, exhilarating culmination in a courtroom in downtown L.A. confirms Edelman's thesis. And there is also Alice Gibney's darkly fascinating and somewhat infuriating zero days about cyber warfare and the limits of transparency, which we will get to in a minute. Yes, there have been some highly touted dogs like The Music of Strangers, Yo-Yo Ma, and The Silk Road Ensemble, which had me crawling out about halfway through, overdosing on all the good intentions, smiles, and the hipster globalization vibes being hurled our way, and Tickled, a documentary about the dark side of tickling competitions. As if anyone could be asked to care, but I gave it a shot, and the movie proves that just because a filmmaker may be interested in a fringe situation doesn't necessarily mean that they can locate the larger metaphor that would resonate. Asif Kapadia's Amy Winehouse documentary, Amy, won the Oscar earlier this year at the 88th Academy Awards and elicited a wide range of responses in me, which I talked about on the Shirley Manson podcast. And there was much to admire in Kapadia's neutral, smooth tone. There are no talking heads commenting on the action. The movie is completely made up from beginning to end of actual footage, so much of it from the subject herself and her friends. And there is only the slight hum of editorializing as the movie begins to track Winehouse's downfall. The movie refuses to find any kind of fault from its subject for anything and suggests a number of male heavies are to blame. And in this moment that struck a nerve, though it contradicts the headstrong Amy from the first part of the movie. But having dinner with Capadia and his wife the night before he won the Oscar here in L.A. last February, Capadia confided to me, that there was stuff confirming that his thesis was right, that the men were to blame, and that legally he just couldn't show it, and that he completely identified with Winehouse herself, not as a junkie or an addict or a pop star, but that there was something about her that he just intrinsically knew and felt in terms of them both growing up in North London. Ultimately, the power of Amy comes from the filmmaking itself and not just the story. Capadia decided to skirt the narrative about the selfishness of the addict, a direction some of us might 
might have gone and decided to go another way, because this is his take on Winehouse, his personal essay on this subject. Having watched Michael Moore's Where to Invade Next earlier this year, you're aware of a much different approach. Moore is an advocate and the complete opposite of Capadia. Moore's movies are editorials. They tell us exactly what to think, how to feel, and he has become a master manipulator, making us interested in subjects that we think we already know about or might not even be that interested in and amusing us in highly entertaining ways. He's documentarian as stand-up, and I always, in the moment, pretty much buy the shtick, even if I'm questioning the veracity of what I'm watching. He's a populist. He wants to tickle you and make money. There is the acknowledgement among filmmakers who make documentaries that, in essence, they are simply making a film about how they feel about a subject. It's not my version or your version. It's the filmmaker's version. However, that's not how audiences usually respond to docs. They usually expect them to be 100% accurate and often read them as such. And that's why the Netflix series Making a Murderer, the 10-part documentary about the Stephen Avery case in Manitowoc County, elicited such passionate responses from audiences, even though anyone looking closely at that doc, as seemingly thorough and sweeping and upsetting as it initially is, has to come to the conclusion that the filmmakers, in terms of framing how they want the viewer to feel, manipulated the audience to an almost assaultive degree. The rage you feel by episode three turns into a different kind of anger by the end of the series. You realize you've been duped. And because the filmmakers have an agenda, they leave out key pieces of evidence that are the reasons why Avery and his cousin, the heartbreaking Brendan Dassey, were convicted. And that is a different kind of cheat than looking at your subject from a different angle. You're not manipulating a feeling or an angle. You really can't. You're manipulating the facts to steer the movie toward your cause. For those of us who were outraged during the first half of Making a Murderer, many of us were just as outraged by the end, but in a totally different way. We were outraged not at the supposed conspiracies swirling through Manitowoc County, but we were outraged at the filmmaker's bias. Wanting to make a point, the filmmakers ended up indicting the audience in a way. Alex Gibney is the incredibly prolific Academy Award-winning filmmaker, and I'm not going to use the term documentarian, since it has become a bit of a dirty word lately, hinting at limitation. And he won the Oscar for Taxi to the Dark Side, which you might remember from 2007, and he's made many, many, many movies. Some of the more high-profile ones include Gonzo, The Life and Work of Dr. Hunter S. Thompson, Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room, Client 9, The Rise and Fall of Elliot Spitzer, which would make a troubling and instructive double feature with Wiener. Um, two amazing docs in one year, 2013, where we steal secrets, the story of WikiLeaks, which might be, I think, Gibney's most powerful film. Though I had dinner last night with one of Julian Assange's acquaintances so randomly who thinks most decidedly otherwise. And this happened completely apropos of nothing. Just an old friend. We we're having dinner. That's all. And the Armstrong lie about Lance Armstrong. Uh, there was Steve Jobs, the man in the machine. There was the definitive Sinatra all or nothing at all, which I talked about a lot on the Ariel Pink podcast, as well as Gibney producing the epic four-hour Eagles documentary, History of the Eagles, a sweet spot for me. And his most controversial film was last year's Going Clear, Scientology and the Prison of Belief, a scathing expose that was the most watched documentary on HBO in over a decade. Gibney's new movie, Zero Days, leaves a viewer wounded, unmoored, floating in uncertainty. By the end, we have all the facts, and yet this knowledge, this uncovering of a secret, is hardly comforting, and it will leave you looking at the Obama administration 
and its obsession with prosecuting whistleblowers from a very different angle than you might have previously. Zero Days is shaped like a mystery, a thriller, slowly and then rapidly solving a series of sinister puzzles. And as with all of Gibney's documentaries, it's cinematic and has the rhythms of narrative film. Part of what he does is bring order to chaos. The goal is to take a hopelessly complicated and arcane subject or a difficult and contradictory person and make them comprehensible to the average viewer without sacrificing smarts or sophistication. His docs are visually stylish, urgent. The unifying theme seems to be the flaunting of lawlessness. And you can even find this in the Sinatra doc. Zero Days is ostensibly about the Stuxnet virus, which takes control of machines and commands them to destroy themselves, and was originally created by the U.S. and Israel and used to destroy a key part of an Iranian nuclear facility. But Gibney found it to be a much bigger story than just that, a story about covert actions, politics, morality, and how our government, in trying to find a quick technical fix, created huge unintended consequences. And these consequences are even more worrying because they are kept secret. The New York Times might have helped uncover the story, but no one is officially confirming anything. And one of the most discomforting highlights that's also grimly humorous in Zero Days is a rapid montage of a series of officials denying they know anything about Stuxnet and yet know that we know they know the truth. Gimney wants a viewer to feel as if they are gradually uncovering and unlocking the secrets that were hidden and embedded inside the code so they will understand the eventual impact of it. That's his usual approach and why his movies work so well. So Zero Days is the most damning movie about the lack of transparency in our government, the stage of the game. Oh, Alex, 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 where to start? I mean, I guess, could you describe what Stuxnet is exactly? And what was the purpose of creating Stuxnet, which is a weapon? What does it mean, for example, that the Stuxnet virus is autonomous? It means it spreads on its own. You don't, unlike the... The Nigerian prince frauds, uh, you know, where you have to click on a link. Uh, Stuxnet just spreads if you happen to be connected to the same printer that also infected it. Also, there are two aspects to the Stuxnet weapon. One is the delivery system, uh, the missile, and the other is the payload. When it came to the payload, the other aspect of it that's autonomous is that when it takes control of the machines at the uh, Iranian nuclear facility in Natanz, it bides its time. It does research into where they are at in terms of filling up the centrifuges with uranium hexafluoride gas and then on its own decides when to attack and when it attacks it takes over machines that force the centrifuges to spin so fast that they blow up so it's got its own sense of logic and its own purpose and while it's limited in terms of its um, purpose um, it, it nevertheless acts on its own. So it spreads on its own. It acts on its own. Nobody clicks go. You know, the Obama administration has prosecuted more whistleblowers than all previous administrations combined. And I I was watching this movie. I was reminded of that. Um, I'd read that somewhere. And I was wondering what caused this culture with regards to the Obama administration? I mean, why them? Is it simply because there are more whistleblowers now or is something else going on? I mean, what is going on with the Obama Justice Department and why can't people talk about Stuxnet even though everyone involved knows about it and it's out there in the first place. I don't know. I mean, it's one of the most bizarre ideas ever. You know, I, to me, is a little bit like Emperor's New Clothes. You know, you know the emperor's naked, but everybody's supposed to say that um, that he's got fine raiments on. I mean, 
It is interesting, though, this whole aspect of secrets. I mean, I think what what Obama started to do was to take seriously this idea like we got to prosecute leakers because in point of fact, people are leaking classified information that they are supposed to keep secret. But there was a in previous administrations, there was a kind of acknowledgement that leaks would happen in part because the government was always leaking for its own political advantage, but because it just part of the system. And The press is supposed to find out secrets Mm -hmm. in order to keep people honest. If the government kept secret about every aspect of government, you know, it would be impossibly corrupt because there would be no sense of accountability. But Obama decides, you know, while campaigning as the most – he's going to make it his administration the most transparent in history, ends up being – the most punitive when it comes to talking about secrets. I talked to friends of mine who were in the Obama administration who were terrified about telling me stuff even off the record because of fear of, of prosecution. He's going after people and going after them hard. But isn't the irony about how this lack of transparency, let's forget about being prosecuted. Let's just talk about safety. I mean, the irony about how this lack of transparency, this overwhelming need for secrecy is actually making us less safe. Yes. And isn't Zero Days really a movie about how dangerous secrecy can be? Absolutely. I think that is the point, that we can't even have a debate about these cyber weapons, which are destabilizing life as we know it, because we live in a world that's so deeply interconnected because of the Internet. And so if you have these weapons that are sitting lurking on computers or or the machines that control critical infrastructure, um, you know, uh, electrical grids, water filtration systems, transportation systems, which could go off and, uh, with a flick of, a, um, of an electronic impulse, you know, that's destabilizing everybody. And yet we're not allowed to speak about it because these weapons and these weapon systems and the idea that we have this enormous uh, offensive cyber capability is supposed to be secret. So, yes, the secrecy itself is putting us at risk. That was part of why I made the movie. Could you describe why Zero Days raises some very, very difficult questions about the nature of America's relationship with Israel and also what it says about the recent U.S. deal with Iran? I mean, that no one should worry about that deal because we have so many precautions in a way. I mean, spoiler alert, I guess, but still, that was such an interesting part of the movie that I found very unexpected, our relationship with Israel and also our relationship with Iran in a way. Yeah, well... In terms of our relationship with Israel, one of the most shocking things that I heard as I was interviewing people was when I was speaking to Michael Hayden, who's former director of the CIA and NSA, and he was talking about the thinking that went on behind Stuxnet. I don't think he referred to Stuxnet, but he was allowing me to sort of connect the dots and referring to the problem that the Bush administration faced regarding the possibility that Israel might bomb nuclear facilities in Iran. And I was asking him about that, and basically what he said was that as they gamed that out in the White House, what they figured was that if Israel bombed Iran, what they were doing was not trying to destroy permanently Iran's nuclear facilities because they really didn't have the capacity to do that. They wanted to draw the United States into a war with Iran so that we would do it. Well, (laughs) that was a whole new rationale for the Stuxnet virus. So from the United States point of view, the part that I didn't initially understand when I went into it was that 
the 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 motivation for Stuxnet was to find a, a device that we could agree on with Israel that would prevent Israel from bombing Iran and causing us to go to war with Iran. That was a jaw dropper. Also along the way, it's a peculiar insight this operation, the Stuxnet operation, into how. Um, this relationship between Israel and the United States work. On the one hand, there's a tremendous amount of sharing of intelligence between Israel and the United States. In the case of Stuxnet, we shared the code for a certain new kind of weapon. And the deal that was made was that either side could change the code if they so wished, but they were going to coordinate it very carefully. The reason we all know about Stuxnet, and Stuxnet was supposed to be kept secret, because one of the genius aspects of this code was that while it was blowing up centrifuges in Iran, it had a kind of uh, Ocean's Eleven component, which told the engineers at the Natanz plant that all was well, even as right. their centrifuges were blowing up. So they doubted themselves. That was the beauty of the of the program. It wasn't an attack from without. They thought they were screwing up from within, and it caused enormous delays in the program. But on account of that, the U.S. and Israel, or the U.S., very much wanted this program to stay secret. And so when they blew up a thousand centrifuges, the U.S. apparently said to Israel, enough, let's slow down, um, mission accomplished for the moment, let's not rush things. Bibi Netanyahu wanted to blow more stuff up. So he instructs his people in Israel to change the code to make it far more aggressive so that it will penetrate, uh, this new version will penetrate much more quickly. The result was that it not only penetrated into the tons, it penetrated all over the world and also had a flaw in it, so it started shutting computers down. So <clears throat> it, uh, it was discovered. Now, if you think about that, that's just the technical aspects. But if you think about that within the larger context of U.S.-Israeli relations, you're sharing military technology. Yes. But two nations have very different points of view on what they want it to be. So you're asking yourself, why are we sharing military technology with another nation that doesn't share our goals? Now, you could say the broader goal was to prevent Iran from achieving a, a nuclear capacity. But how you achieve that goal was very much not an agreement between the two sides. You say that while we have international agreements governing conventional warfare, as well as PACs covering biological, chemical, and nuclear weapons, there are no protocols in place for cyber weapons. What do you hope that Zero Days does? I mean, what hope? I mean, what do you hope it opens up? I mean, are you optimistic or pessimistic about how it might change the dialogue on not only Stuxnet, but cyber capabilities in general? I'm pessimistic, but hopeful. You know, in the sense that the momentum for secrecy seems so overwhelming, but it does seem that people are getting pissed off. Yes. That the government is keeping so much from us. And we can tell by the number of mistakes that get made that very often the purpose of secrecy is not to protect us, but to protect screw-ups in the government. Right. Which ultimately will lead to massive corruption. So we should be pissed off. Uh, and, and I think that there is a momentum demanding more and more openness. And when it comes to cyber weapons, we're not saying – the, the film is not saying, you know, we should know the codes or we should, we should have access to, right. the, to, to, to the people who are writing the malware so that we can take these things apart. We're saying we need to understand what these weapons do, how they do them, and, and how much at risk we are because – you know, we're the most vulnerable nation probably on earth when it comes to internet-born malware because we're so interconnected. Going back briefly, 
Yale in, I guess, the early 70s? Yeah, I think I graduated 77. So UCLA was late 70s, uh, UCLA Film School. Yeah, 79, 80, I think. So you were kind of at the end of the golden age of American cinema. What were you studying in film school then, and did you want to be a movie director? And also, who were the filmmakers that you had looked up to and that had inspired you and that perhaps you wanted to emulate? Because the director at that minute in the culture was kind of the grand scale a tourist uh that was kind of the moment that was ending as you were going into ucla film school well i mean at at yale one of the great things about that experience i remember at the time was that every night there was another film society showing another movie Mm. and uh you know one night it would be you know give me shelter by the mazels brothers the next night it would be exterminating angel by louis bunuel Mm -hmm. People like Scorsese and Coppola were very much in the air as, as young people who had taken over or who had blown away this sort of old studio system, much as, you know, the French, you know, like Godard and, and Truffaut had blown away the sort of tradition of quality, um, uh, you know, the stodgy tradition of quality of French cinema. So it was a very exciting moment, and you wanted to be part of that where you could – say something personally, but say it to a lot of people. The, the auteurist notion was very uh, appealing. But also, you know, it was a peculiar moment now as I look back in that at that time, if you went to the movies, if you saw Gimme Shelter and then you saw Godfather, they were both movies. It wasn't yeah. one is a documentary and one is right. a movie. Uh, they were both movies, and and they both had a certain kind of appeal. And also looking back recently, as I did at Gimme Shelter, it's tremendously complex and robust in terms of its narrative storytelling. It's basically a murder mystery. Yes. Uh, and that was always underappreciated. So I came out to UCLA not quite sure exactly where I was going to go, but knowing that I wanted to make movies. Would they be documentaries? Would they be not? And when I, what I studied at UCLA was both fiction filmmaking, and I, I have great memories of, uh, of a cinematography teacher named Frank Vallert, um, uh, a Czech, one of the Czech emigres, mm-hmm. you know, who was wonderful in terms of dramatic lighting and so forth and so on. But also, you know, it was um, there were other people at UCLA like Steve and Mamber, I think, who was an academic who was studying, you know, Fred Weissman, who was a hero of mine. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, there was a lot of uh, sense of possibility in the air. And um, and while I was at UCLA, I, I made a, a doc that, you know, got on some PBS stations and won some awards. But I also then, before finishing, got a job with the Samuel Goldwyn Company and was much more plugged in, at least for a while, into the fiction filmmaking world. Things are so different now, you know? I mean, the fact that I'm asking the questions uh, to all of my guests, because this is primarily a film and TV content podcast, is do you still see movies? And do you still keep up with film culture? And if so, is there anything, I don't know, you've seen the last few years that you've loved? Is there something going on in movie culture that you're connecting with? Or do you think there has been a kind of seismic shift in how we relate to movies? I think there has been to some extent, but I think it's been a uh, and and there was a big lament that the movie is dying. You know, nobody's mm-hmm. going to the cinema anymore. I don't quite see it that way. I mean, I always felt that you know I think there's a tremendous amount of innovation going on all over the place. It's cinematic. It doesn't always end up in the movie theater. You may not always see it in the movie theater. The home now, with its big screen televisions, has become a place where you can appreciate cinema and and binge on material, particularly. TV dramas that have suddenly gotten astoundingly good. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And and also 
the documentary has come into its own as a form. Right. You know, I remember 15 years ago, people would warn me, you know, you're going into a meeting. Please don't mention the word documentary. <laughs> and, you know, that was the deal. Uh, but now it's like people are so excited about it. They're, you know, at festivals, they're more inclined to go see the docs before the fiction films, which sometimes have a kind of formulaic quality about them. Well, you once said about uh, getting back to Bunuel and the Exterminating Angel, uh, that it was a movie that had changed your life to a degree and the way you saw things. And you said it was, quote, funny and mysterious in ways that can't be reduced to a simple analytical explanation. And I always thought that was what's so great about movies sometimes. And do you still feel this way? And is that something you'd like to achieve in your work? Can you achieve that kind of feeling in the documentary? No, I think you can. I mean, you know, at the end of The Armstrong Lie, Lance says something about, you know, at the very end of the film about in the future, will there always be blanks where my name used to be, you know, having won the Tour de France? Or, or will over time, you know, they get religion and put my name back? At its simplest level, it's a guy saying, you know, I want back in the game or people should recognize me. But in a more profound way, it, it really has all sorts of contradictions and ambiguities in it. You know, it, it, yes. it's he's telling the truth in some way because the, the Tour de France people have, you know, basically done what Robespierre used to do by painting people out of portraits. You know, suddenly Lance Armstrong is gone, even though there are a lot of other people who doped. At the same time, it sheds an enormous amount of light on Armstrong, like Armstrong, yes. you know, Armstrong's lie. And, mm. and for me, the worst part of his crime was the way he betrayed cancer survivors right. who were really depending on him to uh, have been clean because that's what was so meaningful to them, that it was his will that made him great, not the drugs. And at the end of the movie, putting it there, it's meant to make you – Roll that around in your head. Yes. It's not meant to say, here is the message. Right. You know, it's meant to make you think, to go out of the theater and, um, and wonder. That's what I hope. You know, it's not that you want to be, you know, a lot of my films do provoke anger. Yes. And some of them are very investigative. But, um, but they're not designed to be screeds. They're not editorials in right. that sense. Right. And, and I hope that there are moments that allow people uh, a sense of wonder. Like in, in Client 9, I keep cutting back throughout the film. You know, there's a, there's a, a guy who was a booker for um, an escort service who's also an artist, an incredibly handsome black man with a always wore a straw cowboy hat for some reason. I didn't understand. But, you know, he's always talking about people as animals, and that seemed like an interesting yes. theme. And so throughout, we're, we've got images of animals in the zoo and at the at the aquarium and so forth and so on. And it's just a kind of undercurrent in the, in the film that has a sort of metaphorical quality that isn't necessarily remarked on, but is very much a part of the story. And it gives a... And, 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 and so some of those images have that kind of surrealist vibe where you put them in because they feel right. Right. And they are resonant, but not because this means that. Right. Um, getting back to Bunuel, who was in many ways a political artist, yes. but never really let ideology trump his unique aesthetic vision. He was an artist first, but also committed to anti-authoritarian material. Yep. Your father was also a journalist, so you said that might be where you got your 
semi-anti-authoritarian streak. And you can see it in your movies. There's, it's, there's almost a thematic run-through through the films in terms of the subjects you're drawn to. But when did this first start manifesting itself? Um, I don't know. I, I, I think it was – I felt it was kind of baked in. You know how you grow up – and you intuit things from your parents in ways you don't really reflect on until they start to show up in in your own yes. behavior. Um, and I think that uh, my dad, who was famous for doing the opposite of what is supposed to be success, instead of sucking up and kicking down, he would kick up and suck down, which is mm-hmm. which got him fired from Time, Life, and Newsweek. Um, and so I, I, I think I got that vibe from him. You know, it's like, don't play the game safe. Say what you want. Yeah. Do what you want. And my mom was very much like that, too. She was an outrageous person. She was, um, you know, I remember as a kid, you know, I, I actually persuaded her, I think in one of her weaker moments, to let me buy a boa constrictor. So, you know, I had a boa constrictor as a pet. One night, she brought home some business associates she worked at the children's hospital who were insufferably boring and then they wouldn't leave so she's trying to think well how do i get rid of them so she went upstairs to the boa constrictor's cage got the boa constrictor put it around her neck and came down as if nothing had happened as if she just had a new scarf on and people looked at her like whoa whoa whoa." and within 30 seconds they had all excused themselves and left so you know that's the kind of stuff that i think um Penetrated and and over time, you know, got me to that anti-authoritarian place. You've also said that you were very much against the idea of objectivity, that it doesn't really exist. It can't exist. So everything is subjective in a sense. So viewers complaining about a doc, I think, can criticize its aesthetics, but not necessarily about how the filmmaker decided to reveal his subjective feelings about the subject. And as I said in the opening, you know, every documentary comes from a personal place, you know, a unique perspective that is neither right nor wrong, you know, whether you're Frederick Wiseman or Josh Oppenheimer, you know. So the manipulation of the truth, whether it's Michael Moore rearranging the timelines and Roger and me, is okay, just as it is with Katie Couric and her epics gun documentary, where after asking a pointed question to the Virginia Citizens Defense League, she inserted an eight-second pause to make it look as if they were stumped by her question, when in fact audio revealed they answered swiftly and decisively. I'm wondering where is the line in terms of manipulating the truth for your own purposes? And I know I know you like to quote Werner Herzog's dictum about an accountant's truth versus an ecstatic's truth. Sure. Well, I also like to quote Marcel Ophels, which is he said, uh, I think he said, um, you know, I always have a point of view. My films always have a point of view. But the trick is showing how hard it is to come to that point of view. Yes. So that you're not just – shielding the viewer from everything that might interfere with your argument um, or from, you know, only showing people, you know, you agree with rather than people you disagree with. Or if you show the people you disagree with, you show them in an utterly mocking light. So there's that. But I, I think there's also a pact with the audience. And I think every film deserves to make the viewer aware of what kind of rules you're playing by. Yeah. Uh, so that you kind of know where you're at. And the problem I had with the Katie Couric thing was that it's totally hidden from the viewer. Right. It seems to be a real moment when, in fact, it's a faked moment. And that seems to me just wrong. But at the same time, I think audiences need to be sophisticated enough to know that every film, every article is a version of the truth 
um, that included certain facts but not others. And over time, it's up to you to decide whether or not you trust the author and whether or not you feel you've allowed enough ventilation into the room so that it's not just, I don't know, smothering. You know, there was a big debate when I did this film, Client 9, about Elliot Spitzer. uh, I did find the real escort who was... um, who, who Spitzer used to see on his trips out of town, which mm-hmm. meant that she was critical to the Department of Justice's case on the Mann Act and so forth and so on. I found her, she didn't want to speak on, on camera and she didn't want, and her voice was very distinctive, couldn't use it. So I hired an actress to perform a transcript mm-hmm. of, of her um, interview with me. When I first show her, though, I don't tell people that she's an actress. I ultimately do, but I don't tell her tell people off the bat, in part for a number of reasons, because I think the Spitzer film is all about what you think things are and the way things really are. The, how how they're how you how people decide on a narrative initially and then uh, you, you realize if you dig a little bit deeper that that narrative is a phony narrative. So I put her in as if she's just a regular interview subject. And also, I felt it was important for the viewer to kind of identify with her because she was a terribly sympathetic character to me. Mm-hmm. She was one of the few truth tellers. And then later on, I revealed that she was played by an actress. So in that way, I felt it was legitimate. And I'm borrowing elements from fiction filmmaking, but in, in terms of what I felt comfortable with in the nonfiction context, I'm letting people in on not the joke, but the the device. Right. And a similar device was used in Zero Days, too. Correct. When, yeah. So I wonder if, I mean, audiences are audiences, you know, sometimes they're dumb, sometimes they're smart. Uh, not everyone gets it. And sometimes you wonder whether documentaries uh, should uh, have a disclaimer at the opening of them, that this <laughs> is an objective film in a way. The following is a work of cinematic imagination and is only Alex Gibney's version of events. Because I was watching the Hollywood Reporter Award Season Roundtable discussion with various documentary filmmakers from earlier this year. Mm. Got a little queasy about the slight hubris that was floating around the table at mm. the time. Not exactly defensive, but certainly, like many members of the press, uh, they seem to feel that they are doing a public service in some way, and that this is a noble calling to a degree. And maybe that kind of nobility—I don't know—maybe it ends up with something perhaps as discredited as the hunting ground or how people catastrophize SeaWorld into this massive aquatic torture chamber because of a pretty lame documentary called Blackfish. I mean, that kind of ideology in terms of uh, what you mentioned earlier does make me uneasy. When when a filmmaker is pushing very hard for, I don't know, reform, for some kind of ideology that they have – and that becomes the, the focus of the film itself, and it kind of wipes away the art. Is there something wrong with me for thinking that? Am I? Am, should I just be chill? Well, maybe you should be a little bit more chill. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you're looking for enemies in the world, you could, you know, the, the, there are worse enemies. You know, you, you, could, you could look to what happened in Sudan or Darfur. Yes. Um, what I do think is interesting is that the, you know, documentaries can um, veer into an area where if they become purely a vehicle for some specific change, 
I don't find them as interesting as films. Sometimes they're necessary. You know, want to rattle, you know, you, you want to ring the bell and make people aware of something they might not have been aware of before. You know, Thin Blue Line is a very interesting textured film about the nature of truth, but also at the same time, it's trying to get at some truth and ultimately got Randall Adams released. Yes. That's a good thing. I also got a little queasy by the end of the Andrew Jarecki documentary about Robert Durst that aired on HBO last year. And it reminded me not only of uh, Joan Didion's quote about how all journalists are basically selling someone out, but it also reminded me of the Janet Malcolm quote that every journalist who is not too stupid or full of himself to notice what is going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible. He is a kind of confidence man preying on people's vanity, ignorance, or loneliness, gaining their trust and betraying them without remorse, unquote. Now, Robert Durst is... A- I have a view on that. <laughs> you have I'm, a view on that? On the Janet Malcolm quote. Yeah. I think that quote is entirely too cynical. I do think that there is a tension, and it's a tension that I reckon with on almost every film that I do. You know, you have an obligation to the viewer... And of course, if you go into a subject in a documentary and say, let me just remind you before we start talking that I have it in my power and it is my right to skewer you if I want to. Right. So how many people would talk to you? They wouldn't. Right. Um, You know, you you do develop a relationship of trust. And I think you have to and, and you have to in order to get them to open up. At the same time, you do have an obligation to them to remind them from time to time that you have your own agenda. You're not working for them. And by the way, that was my, uh, I remember that was my, you know, I had a six hour conversation with Julian Assange trying to persuade him to talk. And I said at one point, Julian, I'm not working for you. Right. And (laughs) and he said, well, I'm not working for you either. I said, yeah, I get that. But, you know, so, so the, the, the point is that there is a tension there, but I always remind myself now, and it's something I've learned over time that, Even if I'm sympathetic toward a character in my film, if I know stuff that portrays them in an unsympathetic light that I feel is more real, and this was the case, say, for the guards in Taxi to the Dark Side, Mm -hmm. I'm honor bound to include a little bit of that material for the benefit of the audience. But at the same time, for subjects that I may criticize, I have to imagine myself being able to sit next to them as the film screens and be able to defend everything that I do to that person. That, I think, is fair. So I don't think, I don't agree with Janet Malcolm that that stuff, that that it's morally indefensible. I think that's (laughs) bullshit. So yes, Robert Durst is a murderer who has gotten away with his crimes because, well, basically, you know, lack of evidence as well as having the money to put up a good defense at one point. But Jarecki, who I know, his ultimate entrapment of Durst, regardless of whether Durst did it or not, it it kind of bothered me. And it bordered on gleeful. It was kind of the lip-smacking climax. And I was bothered as well by Jarecki kind of fudging the timeline regarding Durst's whereabouts in the final episode to make it a lot more suspenseful. At least the New York Times confirmed this. I mean, Jarecki stopped talking about this movie the week after it came out. But and it just kind of made me queasy. I mean, what Jarecki was presenting to Durst and what he hoped Durst was buying and also knowing he was going to betray Durst just made me supremely uncomfortable. And I started to get distracted by the Jareckiness of it all mm. by the end. Now, I know Durst approached Jarecki, but did you find any of this while watching that documentary? And what did you ultimately make of the jinx? Well, I like the jinx. uh, And I do think that some of that discomfort that you feel is actually baked into the material. In other words, I don't think 
I don't think that Andrew would, and I know Andrew, mm-hmm. um, I don't think that he would say that, oh, that's just in there by accident. You know, I think that some of the discomfort is actually in in the exchange with him and Durst. And, and as you say, it was Durst who approached him. So there's a little bit of, you know, the dangerous animal coming in to the hunter's house and, uh, you know, the hunter maybe, you know, finding a way to tell the truth. But this was a this was a dangerous character. And I think the exchange between Andrew and Durst is part of that cat and mouse game that you're beginning to enjoy. So I didn't see Durst in a way as kind of a helpless victim. And I and I sense that that there was enough in Andrew's presentation of the exchange so that that discomfort that you're talking about is actually in the material. Well, I will say that the Jinx is much better than the fictional version of the case that Jarecki made a few years right, uh, earlier called All Good Things with Ryan Gosling as Durst. And, and it makes you think maybe docs are the way to go. But what are the differences, moral or aesthetic, between, say, Catherine Bigelow's Zero Dark Thirty and your film Taxi to the Dark Side or the Benedict Cumberbatch, Julian Assange botch The Fifth Estate and your film about Assange, We Steal Secrets? Or the bad Danny Boyle, Steve Jobs pick, and your Steve Jobs pick. What are the differences between the two? One is a biopic. One is a documentary. What does one do better than the other? And I'm I'm asking this using three pretty problematic fictional films. Sure. But what do you gain by going one way? What do you lose by going another? I know that's kind of a macro question, but is there something that you latch on immediately when you hear that? Well, I, I think I guess it just kind of depends. When it comes to people like Assange or Jobs or Armstrong or, to take an example of a film I didn't do, Muhammad Ali, When We Were Kings versus Ali, right. the one with Will Smith, you know, it's hard to find people who can play those characters yes. better than those characters themselves. Right. It's hard to find somebody who combines that, who uniquely combines a charisma and unbearable narcissism is somebody like Julian Assange. Right. Um, and I think that for the fiction filmmaker, it presents a challenge because how can you find a slice of life that allows you to do something different or better or more interesting other than just having an actor so more people are going to go see it, you know, that, that takes you into territory that you can't get to um, in a good nonfiction film. And I think that's the choice that that nonfiction sometimes is faced with, too. Is there enough there? You know, you talked about the O.J. uh, film earlier, and I just just saw it maybe about a week ago, which I I was riveted by. Oh, yeah. It would be hard, though, to do that film with, say, the same way with somebody like Robert Durst because there isn't that footage of Robert Durst. Part of the reason you do the O.J. film is because – of what it represents, and he takes it to a whole nother level in terms of race in America, but also because you can tell that story in images because they're there. And that was the problem I faced with Julian, you know, and it wasn't really till I was able to make common cause with a wonderful filmmaker from Australia who had shot Julian at a key moment in time. I remember that. Which was so amazing. just prior to him becoming famous. That's right. So you saw Julian before he had become, I would say, perverted by fame. Um, and it was a it was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful moment. Uh, that will, moment will never come again. So once I got that, I knew I had a movie. Uh, that and the fact that, you know, because Julian didn't 
agree to be interviewed, I spent a lot more time with Chelsea Manning than I would have otherwise done. You know, you mentioned that. That's an amazing moment at the end of We Steal Secrets when you do see that footage of the young Julian Assange. And it makes me wonder about sometimes how you put together a documentary and how sometimes the internal engine of it, of course, is the subject matter. And maybe sometimes if you rearrange the material, it would work more to your advantage. I was thinking a lot about Citizen Four, Mm. the Edward Snowden doc, which won the Oscar two years back. And the first half has this fascinating subject, a not yet famous Edward Snowden in a hotel room giving his first interview to the filmmaker and to Glenn Greenwald. And it's just so intimate. And we already know what's going to happen. We watched him kind of as a kid. There's that remarkable scene where he's getting dressed and he's trying to get his hair right in the mirror. And he's just so alive. And then in the second half of the movie, he's gone. And he's in, he's in hiding. And the movie moves on to its second half. And I was wondering if there was some way that Laura could have... And for me, the movie became actually less interesting and less compelling that minute after we're out of that hotel room. And I was wondering, how was there a way to edit that movie so that you could have had both in a way? You could have had the aftermath. You could have had Snowden interspersed throughout the movie, perhaps. Because really, he's so fascinating to us that the minute he's gone from the screen, we're just kind of looking at graphs and reenactments of cars driving around. All beautifully made, by the way. But it was – it just sometimes makes you understand, when does a documentary, I guess, usually fall? off the rails for you? I mean, is there a common problem that afflicts documentary movie makers? Narrative filmmakers usually point to act three, act three problems, act three, you know, things that happen. Is there something that that for documentaries is usually, ah, they fell into that trap? It's hard to say that there's one problem, but you can usually tell that, you know, the, the problem for films tends to be that they break their own rules. I mean, I'm a big believer not that there is a rule book, but that every film has its own internal logic. Yes, dream logic. Even. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, that, and it's, it's when the film starts to veer from its own dream logic uh, that it gets into trouble. And suddenly it, it, it veers into territory that, that feels adverse to, to the rest of the film. I think that's the problem. And I think, honestly, that's, that's the problem, though I think it's a, it's a great film. You know, Laura wanted to say all these things about secrecy and she moved into, you know, the realm post-hotel um, room with, with, yeah. with Snowden. You know, she felt that's where she wanted to go, which, fine, that's her choice. But I was much more riveted by the Edward Snowden moment, as you say, which is one of the great... I mean, when does that ever happen? What a magnificent thing. And I thought it was edited within, you know, an inch of its life, which very powerful, that where you have history in the making and the documentarian is there capturing it in all of its intimacy and awkwardness and uh and and yet it's of such great moment you know sometimes i'm just generalizing now i'm not necessarily talking about uh citizen four but um when people veer into that territory where they they need so strongly to make a a statement um that boils things down too much yes in a way that i think can be troubling. I mean, I one of the great documentaries in the last 10 years or so that I've seen is um, is Waltz with Bashir. Have you seen yes, that? Yes, I have, yeah. That moment at the very end where finally you see the wailing women from just after the Sabra Shatila massacre is, is just one of the most jaw-dropping moments in cinema yes, in the last few years because is. he's there's though a moment where he upends his own cinematic conceit but for great dramatic purpose it's like i've been in the dream world the entire time and now i'm going to remind you that there was a real world out there of real consequence and um 
Uh, and that's really what you should be upset about. You know, there are a lot of really good documentaries, but sometimes, <laughs> you know, the democratization of the arts makes a lot of bad stuff. There's tons of terrible movies now, more terrible movies than ever because everyone can make them. Sure. And I am at this podcast inundated with docs from people who make them that <laughs> you'll never hear about. And, I, and sometimes I dutifully check them out. And it does kind of, uh, you know, there is sometimes in the culture, the middle of the road is a way towards acceptance. And some of our least challenging docs are our most popular at times. As much as I enjoyed searching for Sugar Man, it was up uh, for an Oscar that same year against, you know, uh, How to Survive a Plague. You know, 20 Feet from Stardom is enjoyable, but it was up against The Act of Killing. And one has to remember that Enron, the smartest guys in the room, lost the Oscar to March of the Penguins. <laughs> so there is always a, you know, there is always that acceptance of a certain kind of doc that is kind of friendly and, you know, but, but also those Oscar things are somewhat unfair because if you, if you are making a documentary about showbiz figures, you probably have the odds in your favor, yes. whether it's Amy Winehouse or, you know, the singers from 23 from Stardom. Also, I think particularly in the in the in the realm of the doc area, but also I think in general, you know, the the Oscar hunger, this sort of treasure of Sierra Madre like uh, <laughs> obsession with 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 Oscar gold, you know, shouldn't detract from what films are supposed to do, which is to move people. That's what they're there for. They're not to, you know, if you win the awards, great, and it's tremendously helpful. It gives you a lot of visibility. But, you know, they're there to move people, and that's what you should be focusing on. And how do you get them out there? And, and films have impact in odd ways, you know, that you never really expect. I remember, you know, in, in Taxi to the Dark Side, I learned that after, um, you know, some months after the film was released, it was adopted as compulsory viewing by the Army JAG school. Now, that I wouldn't have expected. Right. But I, it made me delighted. You know that it that it, that it actually was something that it, it had created apparently a sacred space, and I I sort of believe in this idea where you you create a space where you don't you know you're not just preaching to the choir, you're allowing everybody to investigate uh, a territory that can mean different things to different people, but also may lead people to a very different conclusion than they arrived with. So it's the obsessive search for the prize. Is, is a bit of a bummer for me because now it's missing what should be more talked about, which is what kind of impact are these things having? That's why, I mean, honestly, not to you know seem like I'm a suck-up or anything, but that's uh, podcasts like this are great because you're talking about impact. You're talking about power, what you mm. like, what you don't like, what moves you. Right. That's ultimately what's so fantastic. I was working for many years on a film about the artists Jeremy Blake and Teresa Duncan, and I've been working with various directors and various producers on this project. They were a young couple who uh, were in the arts. Uh, he was a painter. She was, this is back in the early 90s, she became famous for her CD-ROMs, and she was quite beautiful. Uh, she got a two-picture deal at Fox in the early 80s and went out to L.A., or actually it was in the late 90s, I think, went out to L.A., and the like, uh, like it usually happens, the movie didn't happen. They fell apart. Endless development. 
uh, and she had cast it at one point uh, to m- get the movie going, um, Beck. And Beck had agreed to be in the movie, and then he had to drop out because the movie wasn't happening and he had a tour coming up. And Teresa began to think that Scientology was behind it because Mm. Beck was a member of Scientology. And as she slowly lost her mind, she created a vast narrative about Scientologists ruining her life, staking her out, ruining her chances in Hollywood. And it really became her undoing until she committed suicide. And then, of course, Jeremy Blake, her boyfriend, who was much younger and who was a really sane guy, began to believe in the conspiracies as well. And then he killed himself, too, a week after she did. Now, when I wrote the script, it had gone from one director to another. The first director was Gus Van Sant. And uh, he liked the way that I handled the Scientology angle which was I kind of didn't because it was a love story. And it was basically about what happens when two people fall so deeply in love that they just see their own reflection in each other. And it was kind of a Romeo and Juliet, a star is born kind of tragedy. And the Scientology aspect of it was very distracting if you're going to make that kind of movie. It really paints it as a much more... I don't know if you're willing to buy it as much as the love story. In in terms of the love story, it becomes very distracting. But Going Clear is the movie you made about Scientology. And up until then, you had not made a movie that was this controversial. Uh, Now that some time has passed, what do you think, looking back at that movie and its release and the controversy? I mean, it has been over a year now. Any follow-up? Is uh, is the church harassing you? Is anything happening? You know, the church harasses me. But luckily for me... Anyway, I was schooled in the church's harassment by former members. And interesting to hear your story about that script because what these former members told me was they'll try to get inside your head. Just don't let them get there. Um, The idea is to make you feel that they're around every corner, that they can get to you wherever you are, and that that will slowly debilitate you. And indeed, you know, people would show up in dark parking lots before screenings and suddenly say, I'm, you know, Randall Stith. I'm making a documentary about you, and I've been a member of Scientology for 40 years. Now you know why I hate you. And, you know, it's like pretty ham-fisted. And, and, you know, I knew enough then to hold up my iPhone, start to photograph, and also to take notes, make mm-hmm. sure I spelled his name correctly so I could introduce him the next time he accosted me. So, uh, you know, I felt like I was somewhat inoculated. On the other hand, you know, the they did go after pretty hard a number of the people who were in the film, particularly yes. the women. And they used PIs a lot to intimidate. And we know that uh, David Miscavige hired a private eye to follow his father, Ron Miscavige, who was discovered with 2,000 rounds of ammunition in the car. So... You know, there's a there is a kind of a thuggish quality to it, but I think at this point they've they've become they they they've become consumed with their belief that you know they have the powers of the children of the damned or something. They can look you in the eyes and make you melt, which doesn't really work. <laughs> I remember, I think it was in 1984 when I picked up Dianetics, and as an 18 year old, I thought, mm, I'll just give it a try. And just to see what everyone was talking about. And then I got to the chapter about homosexuality Mm, and said, oh, boy, I just didn't finish the book. I mean, I understood that it was a scam for me. I got it at 18. I I understood that. And that I personally thought it was a joke. And I I would not benefit from Dianetics. I would not benefit from Scientology. 
But why isn't the more virulent anti-gay agenda talked about when Scientology is discussed? I mean, I guess because, I mean, all religions have it to one degree or another, but that part of Scientology isn't really talked about in the mainstream media, and it really is talked about with gay men. Um, What is the hesitancy to really start making those connections especially when it comes down to the rumors about movie stars and et cetera. What, I'm not what? sure what the reticence is. I mean, it's baked into theology. You know, Ron Hubbard was very clear about his anti-gay agenda. And and it's, as it turns out, it's what caused Paul Haggis finally to leave the That's church. That's true, because of his daughter. Right. right. Um, so, so it's certainly there. Um, and they've just tried to downplay it. Um, and, you know, with the rumors about Travolta, whether he's gay or not, who, who cares? I don't, right. I don't I, you know, but the, the issue is whether or not they feel they have information on him to be able to somehow undermine him or threaten him for whatever it is he wants to be. I don't know. Right. What would happen to Tom Cruise or John Travolta if they left the church, suddenly decided to leave the church? What would the church do? I mean, what could they do in terms of them being such well-known people? I mean, could they really start a huge uh, campaign to smear them? I guess they could. They could, but I don't think, you know, I think the fear is overdone. Um, I think the you know the subtitle of that film is Prison of Belief. I think that the bars of the cell are open for John Travolta and Tom Cruise, but they don't want to leave because they are there in the Prison of Belief. And there is this specter of threat hanging over them. But I don't think that's what keeps them in. I think what keeps them in is, is belief and that if you were to leave, you'd have to admit that you were wrong for that many years. Or Actually, I don't think that's really true. I don't think you have to admit that, but that's how you feel. And, and, and many of the people that I talked to who left, it was the hardest thing for them to leave because then particularly members who had, people who had been in the Sea Org would have to would have to look at what they had done and what they believed and realize that they were wrong. And that turns out to be a terribly hard thing to do. You know, in an odd way, you know, I discovered something, something similar when I was doing uh, the Armstrong lie uh, because a lot of people, whether it be Floyd Landis or Tyler Hamilton, you know, were caught doping. But it took them a number of years to actually admit to themselves that they had doped, even though yes. they knew they had doped, right? <laughs> yes. And so it's something that goes on in your mind where if a religion becomes so much a part of who you are and who your character, it's somehow self-abnegating. Is that the word? Yes. Um, that that you're, you're, you're kind of turning your back on yourself and undermining who you are. And I, I, I remember feeling that when I went to church one time. Uh, with my wife. She's a church shopper. You know, she likes to find a church that is good with uh, social services and has a charismatic minister who talks about moral issues. Fine. Mm-hmm. So I went one time and I was, I'm a lapse, deeply lapsed Catholic. So I, I'm going there and, and we're saying the Lord's Prayer. And the Protestant version, you know, tax on for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory at the end. The Catholic version ends, deliver us from evil. So I'm saying it by rote, and I stop at deliver us from evil. And I thought a few seconds later, it's like, what is that about? You know, you're just saying it. You're no longer a believer. You're just saying it out of politeness anyway. But somehow you feel that this Protestant version is the phony version, that you've been so inculcated in the idea of having been raised Catholic that that's part of your identity, that that you're going to maintain that in some way. 
odd way. Some people get imprisoned by the need to believe in something so fervently that they're not willing to accept that there may be flaws. That is the prison of belief. And as it applies to Going Clear and to Tom Cruise. But doesn't it sound like something else? Doesn't it sound like millennial social justice warrior thinking in general, kind of like a child, like children who never grow up, who have spent their entire lives on social media and creating their own safe spaces? But before I ask you a couple of other questions about your documentaries, what do you make of what has been happening, for example, because it is a kind of prison of belief on college campuses. And, and are you shocked that there are students now who don't want to hear anything about the First Amendment, that if you use that as a defense for free speech, they see it as simply an excuse for you to trigger them with your macro or microaggressions and forcing them into their safe spaces? And I, I mean, I really do think that any students today who uh, demand trigger warnings on Shakespeare or Toni Morrison uh, or needs a safe space should be probably expelled immediately. <laughs> Um, but I that's don't know just about me. expelled, but I have huge problems what with, kind of with this issue of, this? of safe spaces. I, I, I think the world is a dangerous place, and the sooner you understand and realize that, the better. And frankly, you know, and I'm a First Amendment absolutist, so you know, you should be able to have the right to say whatever it is you want to say. Um, and the only you know defense against bad speech is more speech. I just wonder when uh, young people became grandmothers and society matrons clutching their pearls in horror at every kind of supposed offense or outrage. I just read Lena Dunham had a post uh, she put up on Facebook today about how unsafe she felt watching the new Kanye West video, Famous. And I was just wondering, how did this happen where 20-somethings became the moral arbiters for speech and art in a way that was that's so censorious? And it's really coming from the left. It's an authoritarianism that's coming from the left in a way that is a very new thing in our lifetime. Uh, I'm not sure it's so new. I mean, I remember being shocked the first time I heard the word politically correct. And, you know, I had done a documentary. I had edited a documentary for somebody else. And because of the characters who were in the film, somebody said, well, there are aspects of this that are politically incorrect. And I said, well, what does that mean? You know, we shouldn't show what happened. Is that what you're saying? Right. <laughs> and, and so – I think it's been going on for a long time, the, I, the, the conflict between things as they should be and things as they are. But the, the, or, as they, or as we wish they we would wish be in they, that kind of candied fantasy of what we wish. Yeah. Right. But to begin to censor speech ultimately is not going to lead to any greater understanding. Your Frank Sinatra documentary was thrilling, and I talked about it a lot on the Ariel Pink podcast when it first premiered. You had full support from the Sinatra estate. And I imagine this was a huge help in terms of all this material and this access to all of this. I don't think I'd ever seen most of that, a lot of that archival footage and all seamlessly put together into this amazing four-hour movie. But were there places that you couldn't go because of the Sinatra estate? Were there stories about Sinatra that you couldn't tell? And there were, were there places that you had to be much more cautious about than you might have otherwise? I think so. I mean, I, I think that... Largely speaking, the film was a celebration of a life, even though it investigated areas of his life or included 
aspects of his life that the family would have <laughs> preferred that I had left out. Uh, well, it was very open about the Mia Farrow thing to a degree. I right. mean, she was interviewed too. And, you know, they were honest about, uh, you know, uh, about their complicated feelings about Mia. There were a lot of people who were badly treated by him in a kind of thuggish way, um, either who wouldn't give us that testimony on the record or, you know, I, I felt within within the context of an overall life didn't make sense. So so there was certainly an element. There, and, and despite the fact that the family, I think, ultimately was great, they did give us a tremendous amount of material. And, uh, you know, I had, I had final cut. Um, but there was, there was definitely pushback, let's put it that way. And I think that if I was doing an investigation of Sinatra uh, and his mob ties, for example, or... If I was, uh, you know, focusing on something in particular, I might have made a different kind of a movie. This seemed to be, in a way, it was, uh, it wasn't entirely Sinatra according to his own voice. Though we, that was like at the center, the undependable narrator at the center, Sinatra narrating his own life either through song, through the eleven through, songs, right, or right. through voiceover. Yeah. But we had a lot of people like Mia Farrow and Harry Belafonte and mm-hmm. and others. Um, so yeah, I, I think. You know, there, it's um, it's softer than it might have been, but I think it creates a pretty good portrait of the man. It's not that it, it shies away from from his cruelty, and I think the Mia Farrow story is a pretty good example of that. Well, not only of the man, but of the century, yes. and that really is what was. Well, so- to me, it was the Great Gatsby. That's what yeah. that was the story, and also I hadn't properly, to be honest with you, it seems weird doing a documentary about Sinatra, but. Uh, I hadn't properly understood what made him great as a musician. Right. You know, right. it was his storytelling ability as yeah. a musician. You know, both the control of his breath and the way he acted these songs in a way that really put him in the moment. So you believe them. There were other people who sang with, you know, very powerful voices, but they had a kind of a phoniness about them. The the best Sinatra songs really get you in the gut. Well, because they're from a place of pain. Yes. It's really the post-Ava Gardner world of Absolutely. like where you can hear it. Even now, driving around Palm Springs, if Sinatra, you know, song comes on from that period, and you can just you can just hear the you know that doomy kind of romance and the and then just the phrasing of it all, and also the, uh, mentioning Kanye for some reason reminded me how free Sinatra was in so many ways that he said what he wanted to, that he had opinions on everything, that he was really like emblematic of the country at a certain point, or or as someone who was kind of flaunting their freedom in a way, in the way that I guess Kanye does. And that was another thing that seemed so new to me watching the documentary. It was funny. He came, he, he sort of got out of step with the times in a, in a, in a funny way. He, yes. he, you know, as, as, as we came into the 1960s, it was not a world that he was necessarily prepared for. Suddenly, you know, broads and dames, you know, were were burning bras and demanding equal rights. You know, it was it was a new world for him and musically as well. I don't think he, he ever got that really. And him trying to keep up the pace with the culture, it makes for some of the documentary's most painful moments. Yes. I know you didn't direct it, but the Eagles documentary, History of the Eagles, which I also loved, was that offered to you, or how did that yeah, come about? Irving Azoff came came to me and then and then I had a long sit down with Glenn Fry. And uh, agree to take it on. And, and to their great credit, my concern was 
twofold. Did they have material that had never been seen or shown before? And they did. It was great home movies and also that wonderful concert footage of them on the Hotel California tour, which, you know, was them at their at their height. And also, were they willing to be honest (laughs) about the fractiousness of the band and willing to allow other people to say what they had to say? And Glenn in particular was great about that. I think that effectively is what makes it as interesting as it is. You know, that there that Glenn is very open about um, who he liked, who he didn't like, the fractiousness in the band, and that we got to talk to a lot of other people who were equally open. So that's what I think really really made the film interesting from a character perspective. Well, one of the interesting things that happens on this podcast, we have a lot of musicians on, and the Eagles are almost always derided in some yeah. way. And I tend to defend them, maybe because I grew up here at the right time and their music resonated in a very SoCal way for me. But I also think that they're kind of misunderstood. A lot of people just dismiss them as kind of, you know, rich hippies from the 70s who wrote about mellow, peaceful, easy feelings without really understanding, I think, the darkness behind something like Hotel California, which seems to be one of the darker boomer elegies about the fall of the American dream that we have in 70s culture. And I think all of the songs on that record are deeply pessimistic and very dark. Uh, and I think that the Eagles, if you give them a kind of sh- a shallow uh, you know, glance over, maybe they do seem that way t- to you. But um, I think part of what I loved about that documentary is that it kind of, at least for me, reminds us that they were a much bigger band with bigger things on their mind than just, you know, um, living in the fast. I also like the origin stories. I mean, Glenn coming from Detroit, you know, with that, with those sounds in his head, including whether it be Motown or Bob Seger, Don Henley coming from Texas, they meet as that glorious footage we were able to find of them, uh, you know, playing backup for Linda Ronstadt no, early yes, on, yes. Um, and and uh, and also, I'm trying to remember his name now. I I, I don't know why I can't forget. The, it was the English producer Glenn Johns, mm-hmm. who kind of turned them down a couple of times, right? Until he hears their harmonies work uh, together, and suddenly realize, oh, I get it now. It's those voices, and um, so the 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 music and how carefully planned and studied it was listening to glenn talk about listening to jackson brown write uh a song in the basement below was really something it, what he what he say it was elbow grease yeah it was amazing right. yeah you also direct commercials you direct commercials you have a series on netflix called cooked you have a number of other side projects including one with the new yorker and i've read you're going to make a documentary about perhaps the film industry's gender problem and you have a lot going on. And I'm assuming, and I ask this of all of my guests, I'm assuming that the money is good for you. But does anybody else really make good money from making documentaries? I mean, I know Michael Moore does, I guess. But it must be a very tough way initially to kind of survive. It is. And I think in part, you know, people say, oh, you're so prolific, blah, blah, blah. Well, if you're not prolific, then... <laughs> you're in trouble financially. I learned almost by accident how to do more than one documentary at the same time, particularly in the cutting room, once we get at the cutting room. So that allows me both to take more time with them, which I find useful aesthetically, but also it means that I'm not rushing to finish because I need to get on to the next one in order to to survive. 
Having said that, I, I do think now with the Boomin documentary that, you know, it is more possible than ever before to make a living doing them. Um, though a lot of the, a, a, a lot of folks, I, I, I guess, supplement it, and I do too, by doing commercials. And finally, you are going to be directing a movie, uh, your first feature film called The Action, a 1970-set political thriller for Lionsgate. So that finally happened. You're finally going to be making a narrative feature movie that's not a documentary. Why, after all this time? Um, you know, I kind of started there. I mean, I was a fiction film editor, and I've always been interested in both. I'd been offered fiction projects in the past, but they hadn't been very good ones. This is one, the story I just loved, uh, and it just so happened, you know, Scott Burns came into my office, who's the screenwriter, and he happened to see a copy of the book, The Burglary, by Betty Metzger on my desk, and he said, oh, I've just adapted that for Lionsgate, and so I, I threw my hat in the ring because I thought it was a great project, and interestingly enough, a project for which I'm going to mix Doc and and and... And, and, and fiction, and I think in a kind of a fun way. We'll use the real Muhammad Ali mm-hmm. in, the, in the film. Mm-hmm. So uh, it just seemed right. And, and that's a, a project for which a, a good documentary was done, but it's a heist film. So you really want to show the heist in, in all its glory. So it seemed like there's a good reason to make it as a fiction film. So I'm, I'm going there. And I think it'll be fun to exercise that muscle. There are a couple of other fiction projects I'm involved with, but I'm not doing it as a way of saying, oh, finally, I can get out of the documentary ghetto, just the opposite. You know, I believe they're all films, and uh, I'm planning a bunch of other documentaries as well. So some make sense as fiction, some make sense as docs. Happy to be going there. <laughs> 